Chapter 84 Ruth vomited. The precious scrap of paper clutched in her fist. She did not keep quiet. She did not hold her hair back. Her customary terror of germs was gone. She was an animal trying to purge a poison. When she had returned with Catherine from Uxbridge's little room, she had been struck down by a terrible suspicion. She was no stranger to avoiding her own thoughts, but this one smashed through her defences like a thundering locomotive through an opening-day ribbon. When did my brothers die? They died in 1915, in the summer. Quentin signed for the grenades in the summer of 1915. They were not terribly far from each other, the middle of France. None of her three brothers were in the same outfit. The army didn't want to risk wiping out entire bloodlines. And strangely enough, the thought had struck Ruth with a grim certainty. She did not imagine that it would be anything other than what it turned out to be. It would be one of them, or, or, the thought was striking, insistent, or there was never any reason for you to have stayed in bed. But that made no sense. How could she have known? My guilt was entirely about my father, she thought blindly, vomiting once more. My betrayal of my husband, my love for and hatred of Gunther, my complicity in the coming of war. I knew nothing about Quentin's guilt. I knew nothing about what he had done during the war. I could not stand to ask. And now, I know, he could not stand to tell me. But all lost lives are lived in the shadows of silence. Active Silence. Silence that is a turning away. When you cover your eyes, you cover your mouth, and your heart, your soul. Ruth felt as if she would never have the strength to rise again. Catherine came knocking at the door of the toilet. It was a vile room, and truth, no moaned Ruth. Her hands suddenly tightened on the cold fish whiteness of the porcelain, and she bit down on her lower lip. She stood up, suddenly, feeling dizzy and headachy. Lowering her head over the sink, she rinsed her mouth and hair. Then she unlocked the door. Catherine stood there, seeing the look on Ruth's face, she took an involuntary step back. Where are the war letters? asked Ruth softly. Upstairs, replied Catherine equally softly. In the attic. Without a word, Ruth slowly climbed the ladder to the attic. Catherine came with her, wheezing at the exertion and dust. It took them two hours. 
Ruth was aware of a vague concern about her husband coming home and finding them and not being ready to confront him, but it was only a vague feeling. Much more powerful was the feeling that she already held the damning letter in her hand and was just working her way to that preordained moment. Catherine found the album in an ancient dark green sea chest. It had not been opened in fifteen years. She wiped the dust off it, wrinkling her nose. This is their final resting place, murmured Ruth, staring at the streaks that Catherine's fingers had left on the cover of the album. We should have had more respect. Don't fall back to that, replied Catherine, passing over the book. That is all gone. Catherine opened the book. Some old photographs. This had originally been a holiday album, but then had been converted in the last half to the preservation of war memorabilia. Various official documents, pay stubs, leave passes. No letters. They were in a cigar box in some other trunk, unopened for fifteen years. Ruth turned the pages without emotion. Catherine wheezed over and sat down next to her. It was her youngest brother. The others were close enough, but their death certificates were before the night of Quentin's great betrayal. Wesley had been disarmed by Quentin. Wesley had been fed to the guns of the enemy like meat through a sausage-maker. She had been partly responsible for her father's death. Quentin had killed her brother. Youngest brother. For Ruth, it was a moment of great inner stillness. She felt as if she had reached the very heart of her family. Psychologically, she had achieved the greatest, deepest state of mind. She was curious. Her youngest brother. She had never loved Reginald. Quentin had murdered her youngest brother. She had never loved her eldest son, the only child of Quentin's. Quentin had always disliked Tom, the youngest son, the mirror of the man he had killed. And Tom fought against war because he was the stand-in for the son her husband had murdered in wartime. Quentin was an appeaser because he had murdered his comrades during wartime and war would bring back all his guilt. He had been evil during wartime, therefore all war was evil. But because it was unconscious, it was inevitable repetition. No matter how Quentin might fight against the coming war. Everything they did brought it closer and closer. If we do not question and oppose our wrongs, we justify them 
and so must repeat them. But, but Reginald, Ruth frowned. Some sort of electric current seemed to be playing through the void of her great curious emptiness like a wriggling eel of light. It was searching for the soul of her eldest son. The eel's teeth closed. Ruth's breath caught. Tom is the reenactment of the murder of the youngest son. Reginald was reenacting Quentin's wartime murder. The youngest son must die. But how would Tom die? It felt true, but Ruth had no idea how it was to occur. Ah, well, of course. It was so simple. Tom was a warrior through and through. Quentin and Reginald would betray England into a war, and Tom would fight and die. Tom would have to fight. It was his nature. Ruth suddenly cried out. Tom's last conversation with her when he had begged her to act against Quentin. His passion, his desperation. It was his own life he was trying to save. Ruth felt something brush her arm and almost screamed. Catherine recoiled. Chapter 85 The meeting had started with Reginald translating for Lord Runciman, but that situation reversed itself within fifteen minutes. Lord Runciman approved of Reginald's responses so completely that he quickly let Reginald do the negotiations and inform him of the progress. President Benes had summoned them to his offices on hearing the news that Chamberlain was planning to fly to Berchtesgaden to have a private interview with Hitler. What can it possibly mean that Chamberlain is going to see Hitler without insisting that the Czechs be present at such a meeting? He demanded. It means, said Reginald, that he is trying to find a peaceful solution to this crisis. And what would that be? asked Benes, giving Germany the Sudetenland, leaving ourselves naked and undefended before them. We could have arrived at that compromise ourselves in March and gotten much better terms besides. To be frank, said Reginald, I don't know why Chamberlain has gone to Berchtesgaden. It is most unusual. We do not even have a treaty with England, cried Benes heatedly. Why are you negotiating on our behalf? Well, England is a world power, not in my country. Reginald favoured Benes with an amused look, as if to say... It is so interesting to watch the rantings of idealists. He is going to discuss a plebiscite, said Benes gloomily, sitting back in his high chair. He is going to say to Hitler, if 50% of the population want to join the Reich, England will not intervene. Well, isn't that the case? Wouldn't you also allow a plebiscite? Benes thumped his desk. Oh, please! Would you allow a plebiscite in Northern Ireland? You are outnumbered a thousand to one in India, yet still you rule. There are those who say we should not, murmured Reginald, the half-smile still playing on his lips. A country is not just whatever a thug can rule, thundered Benes. A country is a moral union. Reginald shrugged. I 
think that were, were God to play a more active role in human affairs, that might be so. As it is, we can reasonably entertain many doubts about your thesis. So you will sit and watch the rape of a fellow democracy? You will do nothing to save us? Reginald held up his hands. First of all, President Bennis, that is up to France, not us. If it is up to France, then why is Delatier not in Berchtesgaden? Why is your prime minister there? Well, the French have been rather disorganized of late, and so, so the British have taken it upon themselves to negotiate with Germany on our behalf. That is fine. Fine with us. But if Mr. Chamberlain takes it upon himself to negotiate, he cannot expect us to be bound by the results of his interference. If we are not consulted as to terms, we cannot be expected to honor the results. That is as you see fit, of course, said Reginald. If you choose to go your own path, you are more than welcome to, but then it shall be your own path. Your own. Bennis went pale. Reginald could not tell if it was from rage or fear. You are not indicating that you expect the French to break their treaty with us? I am saying nothing of the kind, said Reginald. I am saying that you should not dismiss British negotiations out of hand. Perhaps you shall have to surrender the Sudetenland, but the integrity of your remaining lands will still be insured by British and French guarantees. I have such guarantees now, cried Bennis in despair. They are doing me no good. The next day, Hart was in Paris with Chamberlain, Sir John Simon, and the French leader, Deladier. Hart had been brought along to take notes. This was for one simple reason. The meeting had been called suddenly and late, and Hart happened to be the only man left in the foreign office when Chamberlain had to leave. "'The question is,' said Chamberlain, "'what are we going to do?' "'Our choice is clear,' replied Deladier. "'And what is that? "'We must all do our duty.' "'I see,' said Chamberlain. "'Am I to understand from that statement "'that France is willing to declare war on Germany "'to save Czechoslovakia?' "'Deladier ducked his head and said, "'I am sure that uh, the answer to that is obvious. "'France will fulfil her obligations. "'We have a million reservists drawn up.' "'That is an excellent step,' said Chamberlain rather sardonically. "'And I have no doubt that you are in possession of an excellent plan.' "'May I inquire as to your next move?' "'Next move? Well, these things must be discussed to their natural ends,' said Chamberlain. "'It would be of great assistance to His Majesty's government to know what plan the French general staff intend to follow.' "'Well,' said Deladier, "'we could not, of course, help Czechoslovakia in the East in any material way, but we could aid her by drawing off German forces in the West.' Chamberlain smiled. I hope that you do not think that I am bringing any undue pressure to bear on you in these matters, but we cannot go into this with our eyes and ears closed. It is essential to know the conditions before making any firm decisions, and we do require answers to questions which have long troubled British ministers in the past. Deladier swallowed. By all means. Chamberlain sat down. Sir John Simon has a list of our questions. Sir Simon stood up. Monsieur Deladier, do you contemplate using the French Air Force over Germany? Do we? Ah, I see. Well, in all recent combats, I'm thinking of the Spanish Civil War in particular, aerial combat has been... Uh, it has figured. In some cases quite uh, prominently. 
Sir Simon paused. He was the Chancellor of the Exchequer and an ex-lawyer and an excellent cross-examiner. Excuse me. I think that my question has been misunderstood since it has not been answered. I shall try again. Please refrain from answering unless you fully understand the question. Now, in what way will the French Air Force be used in a war with Germany? Deladier pursed his lips, obviously wondering whether to be offended. Finally, he said, The French Air Force would be used as a cover for our grand troops, so you would invade the Rhineland. If we were going to support the Czechs, that would be the logical next step. We cannot make sensible recommendations based on what you think is the logical next step, Monsieur Deladier. We must know the intentions of the French general staff. Will you invade the Rhineland? Yes, yes, we would invade the Rhineland. Is that your opinion, or is it the plan of the French general staff? In my understanding, that, that is their plan. But you are not sure. This has certainly been discussed. Is it something that you would support? Obviously, we cannot support the Czechs without invading the Rhineland. So it is something you would support. Yes, yes. But you don't know if your generals support it. They would have to if supporting Czechoslovakia was our intention. Sir Simon took a deep breath. Monsieur Daladier, he said slowly, you have a treaty with Czechoslovakia. In this treaty, you are bound to come to Czechoslovakia's aid if she is invaded. If Mr. Chamberlain's mission to Berchtesgaden should come to naught, there is every reason to believe that Germany will invade Czechoslovakia. Do you plan to support Czechoslovakia? We would never abandon our treaty. Excuse me. But that is an equivocation. It is not, cried Deladier. We are stating that we would honor our treaty. So you would support Czechoslovakia and invade Germany. Yes, we have our honor, no doubt. Yet when we ask what your invasion plans are, you cannot tell us. I can. I can tell you. Then please do. We, we would declare war on Germany if Germany invades Czechoslovakia. Then right away, right away, de declare war? Yes. No. We would wait four or five days to evacuate Paris. Thank you. Go on. Please do not omit any more details. We would then bomb uh, industrial targets in the Ruhr and Saar. We would invade Germany immediately on land. Would you mobilize the remainder of your army? You have only mobilized one-third at the current time. Yes, we would mobilize. When we met steeper resistance, we would retreat behind the Maginot Line. Sorry? Asked Sir Simon. You would... What? We would retreat behind the Maginot Line? Why? Well, we would hope that by that time the attack on Czechoslovakia would have ceased. And if it had not... You are now asking me what our plans would be for a long-term war against Germany. I do not have that information. You, you could not expect me to. And now I have some questions of my own. Sir Simon paused. Very well. If France declares war on Germany, will England also declare war on Germany? Yes. And what would England then do? We would mobilize the fleet and begin the blockade of Germany. 
we would send men, materials, and airplanes to France. And how many divisions can you send? Two. There was a pause. Hart looked up from his scribbled notes, shocked. Deladier laughed. Two. Two. And tanks? We, we could send a few, said Sir Simon. So, you cross-examine me as to my resolution when you can give me in troops what amounts to 4% of the German army. Do you have no shame? We have the fleet, said Chamberlain, and it was the fleet, if you recall, that finally brought Germany down the last time. Deladier's face darkened. Of course, of course it was your fleet. The million and a half French dead had nothing to do with it. There is no point bickering, said Chamberlain, smoothing his moustache. What we came here to understand is what we are going to do about Czechoslovakia. And I believe that we have understood your position, Monsieur Deladier, and thank you for your patience. They say that the Great War arose from a succession of misunderstandings, and we have no desire to repeat that mistake. No, of course not, but I do not think it will come to war. This brings me to my next point, said Chamberlain, rising. Thank you, Sir Simon. In my meeting with Herr Hitler, we came to the following conclusion. I propose that a plebiscite be held in the Sudetenland, wherein any population which votes 80% or more to join Germany will be allowed to do so. Deladier snorted. Allowed. By who? By us, said Chamberlain with perfect composure. By France, England, and the League of Nations. And if Czechoslovakia resists, if Czechoslovakia resists, then we must let events take their course. Mon Dieu, muttered Deladier, and you complain that I evade. Then, if I am not clear, I shall endeavour to become more so. If Czechoslovakia resists the German occupation of areas which have voted to rejoin Germany, then we shall let her fight Germany alone. We shall not... Come to her aid, even if you choose to do so. We... The laddie's voice broke, and he cleared his throat. We cannot fight alone. Sir Simon smiled. It would be inadvisable. We have always understood that we would be fighting with the British against Germany. But this is not a general war, said Chamberlain. Germany wants a German-speaking people back. They want to go back. If Czechoslovakia resists that inevitable reconciliation, she does so at her own peril. Then she is not resisting invasion, but restitution. The Sudetenland should never have gone to Czechoslovakia in the first place. How could we go to war over something so ridiculous, something we would never have agreed to or suggested in the first place? And we shall be remembered for this, gentlemen. I do not act with one eye on the history books, but we shall be remembered as the first statesmen to negotiate themselves out of general slaughter. It shall be the model for the future. War has changed to the degree that it has become unthinkable. Very well. Then let diplomacy also change. No more defense of arbitrary borders. If the forces of nationalism cannot be contained, and there is every indication that they cannot, then let us loosen the pressure on nationalism, and let cultures with historical continuity and common language join together. I care not a farthing about whether the Sudetenland is part of the Reich or not. 
The only aspect which troubles me is the practicalities of the transfer. And President Bennett should not be too shocked. It is, of course, a delicate matter to suggest an amputation to an ally, but he should never have considered the Sudetenland as an eternal part of Czechoslovakia. Would England be prepared to issue a guarantee for what remained of Czechoslovakia? Oh, I think that would be most unwise, said Chamberlain without hesitation. All we have to do is look at your current example to see what can happen when treaties binds one's hands. Treaties are usually great liabilities and serious sources of embarrassment. However, should Czechoslovakia agree to certain restrictions, such as the repeal of her treaty with the Russians and agreeing to accept the British government's advice on issues of peace and war, then we could contemplate such a guarantee. But we have guaranteed Czechoslovakia in its current state, said Deladier gloomily. If we were an egg now, what faith would Benes have in future guarantees? What faith would any power have in the honour of France? We should become a second-rate power in an instant. And there is great unease in France about abandoning Czechoslovakia. And in England, too. More than 40% of your own population disagree with throwing Czechoslovakia to the wolves. It is the great question, said Chamberlain with a little smile. Would you rather keep France's honour and have her bombed into extinction, or sacrifice a little honour for the sake of her continued existence? I am more pragmatic than idealistic, but it is the decision each man must make for himself. Yes, yes. The only relevant part of our decision, as far as France is concerned, is that if you choose honour, war, and quite possibly your own self-destruction, you will do it alone. Deladier appeared not to hear these last words, but stared at the back of his hands, flexing them slowly. Then he glanced up and folded his hands on his lap. When Venice received the message from the British that they had told Hitler that he could have the Sudetenland, he returned the message with a curt dismissal. We were not consulted. We will not comply. The British and French foreign offices were thrown into a frenzy. Messages poured into Berlin that neither country had advised Venice to take such a step. Chamberlain flew out to see Hitler once more. He proudly told the Fuhrer that he had managed to get the French and British cabinets to accept the proposal. Hitler said that he was no longer interested in plebiscites, but would march into the Sudetenland by the end of September. It was up to Benes whether this would mean war or not. The entire population of Europe braced for war. Children were hurried out of Paris and London, ditches were dug in High Park, gas masks were distributed. In Prague, Lord Runciman met with Benes and said, President Benes, nothing could be more honourable than for Czechoslovakia to bow to an overwhelming force rather than to plunge the world into another war, which would be the end of European civilization. You will go down in history as a great man if you surrender territory now, which you had agreed to surrender in a few months if plebiscites were arranged. Benes almost threw the old man out of the office. The pressure on the president was immense. Cables arrived hourly from Chamberlain. 
However much we may sympathize with a small nation confronted by a big and powerful neighbor, we cannot, in all circumstances, undertake to involve the whole British Empire in war simply on her account. From senior British government official Horace Wilson. You should now be told starkly how matters stand. You do not seem to realize that you are in danger of being completely overrun. Your best course seems to be to withdraw troops from the areas to be occupied, leaving Germany to effect a bloodless occupation. On the evening of September 27, 1938, as German troops began massing on the border from Chamberlain, Germany will attack almost immediately unless you accept the German terms by 2 p.m. on the 28th. This would result in Bohemia being overrun. Nothing that any other power can do will prevent this fate for your own country and people. HMG cannot take responsibility of advising you what you should do, but we consider that this information should be in your hands at once. Benes sent a message to the Czech Charte Fair in Berlin. Please inform the Germans that Czechoslovakia knows something about dying with honor. Late on the evening of the 27th, Benes sent a message to Hitler. Czechoslovakia would consider any crossing of the border by German troops as an act of war. He demanded that the major powers convene an international conference to discuss the matter of the Sudetenland. On hearing the news, Chamberlain ordered the mobilization of the British fleet. On the following morning, the Italian ambassador arrived at 10 Downing Street with a message from Hitler. The conference to determine the fate of Czechoslovakia was to occur at 2 p.m. on the following day, the 29th of September, 1938, in Munich. Chapter 86 Wendy pulled the car into the small gravel parking lot which lay beside Tom's block of flats. The children had been quite mental during the drive up from London, so excited to see their uncle. Their favourite living male, thought Wendy dismally. They usually shake hands with their father and throw themselves at their uncle Tom's legs. Wendy checked that she had her little travel bag with her and took the girls upstairs to Tom's flat. Wendy had telephoned him that morning. She had first said that she needed to get out of the city, but he had hesitated. Then, without a twinge of guilt, she had put Jocelyn on the telephone to ask Tom if she and her sister could come up and see him for a few hours. And could their mummy come? And so it was arranged. Wendy could tell that he was in a somber mood, and her knees went weak. My poor, wounded, grieving knight. Reginald was never somber. He got irritated, enraged, petulant, giddy. Never somber. Jocelyn and Lillian flew into his legs. Tom smiled and helped them clamber up his lanky frame into his arms. They both began to babble at once, then tried to hit each other for interrupting. Tom demanded kisses first, and they obliged, though wrinkling their pretty little noses at his stubble. 
They all entered. Wendy said that Tom's flat needed a woman's touch. This comment made him even more somber. She declared that he was a born bachelor, a natural heartbreaker. He smiles a little at this. He asked if they were hungry. They all had some soup. The girls both sat on Tom's lap. He kept kissing their hair absent-mindedly. This action kept breaking Wendy's heart. Reginald only caressed his children when they were in public. It was never absent-minded, never unconscious. Wendy asked Tom if he would mind watching the girls while she had a little nap. It was fine. She pulled out a naughty book, and the girls begged Tom to read it to them. He acquiesced. Going into Tom's room, Wendy was struck by its lack of ornamentation. Of course, he was a man, so she could not expect more than one old pillow, but he should at least have some little pictures on his wall or on his bedside table. She craned her head around his little bed, where two could only lie intertwined, and saw that he had no bedside table. A few books, a Dickens, a Nietzsche, the Antichrist, a Flaubert. Wendy frowned, surprised. All she knew of Tom's intellectual life was that he had been thrown out of Oxford for failing to secure a scholarship. Reginald, who had taken his degree with honours, only read the newspaper and his inbox. Her heart thrilled to Tom's unsuspected life. She pictured him reading by the light of three or four candles, of differing height for balance. On a hot night, his little blanket riding his lean hips, brushing his damp hair back, his eyes fierce and concentrated. Shivering a little, she listened to the sound of uncle and children settling on the sofa, then opened Tom's closet door silently. Some boxes, two belts lying on the floor, Wendy thought, irritated for a moment. But she pictured herself squatting on her heels, picking up his belts as he stood by the bed, laughing and thanking, not like Reginald, who snapped at her for moving his things. Wendy scowled. To be thanked for what comes naturally to me, how precious that would be. Not to be fought for all my instincts. To be able to help and to be loved for helping. Not to have all my gifts rejected as insults. Wendy's breath caught involuntarily. She froze, squatting, cocking her head. No movement, just the murmur of big and little voices. She stretched out on the bed, wriggling under his blanket. The pillow was a little sour, but that mixed with everything natural about Tom, and she ground her head into the cotton with animal abandon. His head rested here every night, filled with plain, manly, mammalian dreams. It did not awaken and cast cold, critical eyes on the world. It did not always require peace and solitude, but could tumble in a happy tangle of growing limbs. It did not always try to control life and the world, but rippled and meshed with it as Wendy imagined a tree full of leaves bent and merged with the wind. Life could live around Tom. It was not caged and shaved and cross-examined. Outside, Tom sat with one child nestled in the crook of each arm. 
The afternoon sun streamed over them, softened by the slightly dusty window panes. Something had quieted the children. Tom had a theory, which was that children were quieted by intimacy, by soul-to-soul contact. When their tender nervous systems were not played like over-tightened violin strings by hysterical throwing and tickling. The girls had been in a car for almost two hours, but they lay still in his arms. Tom put the naughty book down on his lap as they talked quietly, almost in whispers. Not because Wendy was sleeping in the next room, but because their ears and words were soft and tender. When I was a little boy, murmured Tom, there was another little boy, and there were these jokes going around which went like this. I'd tell you the joke about the high wall, but you'd never get over it. Or, I'd tell you the joke about the blunt pencil, but you'd never get the point. That sort of thing. I don't know if they're still popular, that kind of joke. So, I said to this one boy, I tell you the joke about the trash can, but it's just a load of rubbish. And the boy the boy followed me around all day, saying over and over, No, it's all right. You can trust me. I won't tell anyone. You can tell me the joke about the trash can. I won't think it's rubbish. Tom smiled. And even when I explained the joke to him, he still thought, I just didn't want to tell him the real joke. That was the real joke, I said. Ah, but no good. Knock, knock, said Jocelyn. Who's there? Mandy. Mandy who? Mandy lifeboats were sinking. Tom laughed. Oh, that, that one was old when I was a boy. Knock, knock, said Lillian, tugging on his ear. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Knock, knock, Lillian repeated. Who's there? Banana. Banana who? Knock, knock, Lillian repeated. Who's there? Banana. Jocelyn wrinkled her nose. That joke's supposed to end sometime, you know. I know. Knock, knock. Who's there? Orange. Orange who? Aren't you glad I didn't say banana? Tom smiled. I've never heard that one before. And I certainly was glad that you didn't say banana again. Now, say this five times fast. Red lorry, yellow lorry. Both girls tried. Lillian was better at it. Then Jocelyn told Tom to say the letter X over and over. Tom shook his head. I can't talk about sex with you lot. They told about 20 minutes more worth of jokes. Then Tom read to them, and they seemed to be enjoying the story. Tom tried his best, but could not refrain from crying. He kept imagining a rocket of some kind coming in through the window and blowing his ribs through their little skulls. And although it was a terrible image, it was not terrible in the imagining. It happened in slow motion, and clouds of dust rose to obscure their final ending. And... Classical music was playing somewhere. The music made Tom cry. He could not keep it out of his voice. The children could tell. You're wrong, whispered Jocelyn, pointing at a smiling picture of Noddy. It's not a sad story. I know, sniffed Tom, kissing both their hands. He's crying on my head, said Lillian, a little petulantly. "'Sorry. Why are you crying?' asked Jocelyn. Tom pursed his lips and shook his head. 
he became suddenly afraid that Wendy would open the door and be angry at him for some reason. "'Do you miss my dad?' asked Jocelyn. "'I bet you do.' Tom frowned. He couldn't think of what to say. "'Do you like our dad?' said Jocelyn. "'Ah!' Tom paused. His mind raced in a million directions. How much of this would get back to Reginald? Would Tom be banned from seeing his nieces? How would Wendy react? She wasn't the most stable of creatures. But how could he lie to these little girls? One lie at five can breed a lifetime of misery. Your dad and I have our... We disagree sometimes. Jocelyn nodded slowly. Her blonde hair rose in little bunches against Tom's jumper. Lillian seemed absorbed in tracing a picture of Naughty, but Tom knew, as a younger sibling himself, that pretending not to listen was sometimes the best way to hear. "'What do you fight about?' asked Jocelyn. "'What does he say?' "'He says that you are stuck up and don't bend. He says, how can you walk if you don't bend your knees or tie your shoes?' (sighs) said Tom, feeling his blood rise. So the thought police have been at work. What does your mummy say? Lillian said, her finger still tracing the picture. She says you're very nice. They fight about it. So why do you fight? asked Jocelyn, twisting in his embrace to look at him. Tom thought briefly about how little all her organs were, how little and how receptive to growth and how, without growth, they would turn on themselves and die. "'We don't fight,' he said, knowing it would only buy a moment. "'You know, you know what I mean. "'You know what your daddy does?' "'He talks for all of us,' said Lillian. "'Well, I don't think he talks for me very well. "'Sometimes. "'So why don't you talk instead?' asked Jocelyn promptly. "'I do,' said Tom.' but no one listens. There was a pause. Tom had a brief vision of Wendy listening from beyond his bedroom door. So you're mad because no one listens? asked Jocelyn finally. That's not his fault, added Lillian. No, said Tom. I think it's dangerous what he says. I think it will make a lot of people fight. Will it make you fight? asked Jocelyn, settling back in his embrace. Tom nodded, then realized she could no longer see him. Yes. No fighting, said Lillian, turning the page. Just share. What does Daddy say that you don't like? asked Jocelyn. There's this bully, said Tom, who wants things. Your dad says, give him these things and he'll stop being a bully. I think that if we give him these things, he'll become more of a bully. That's Hitler, said Jocelyn, tweaking Lillian's arm. Lillian jerked her arm away. I don't like bullies, said Jocelyn, but you have to turn the other cheek. Yes, said Tom. Yes, that's what they say. And that's good for some things, but not everything, not the whole world over. Jocelyn chewed her hair a little over this one. Then she turned back to look at Tom. So, Where is it bad, then? Tom almost smiled. Then 
Before he could answer, the door to his bedroom opened. Wendy looked quite lovely. Tom noticed it almost reflexively. Her hair was tousled, her lips seemed more red and plump, her azure eyes were striking. He noticed the length of her legs and her slender calves. She smiled radiantly. "'Children, it's time for your nap,' she said languidly. There was much complaining, especially from Jocelyn, who said that Uncle Tom was explaining Daddy, but Wendy seemed quite intent on getting the children to bed. She lifted them from Tom's embrace and let Lillian hang on to the naughty book. She promised to wake them in an hour. She even seemed unembarrassed when Jocelyn, who was rather fussy, complained about the smell coming from Uncle Tom's pillow. Within ten minutes the children were settled. Wendy returned to the living room, then said, "'Tom, do you have anything to drink?' He smiled. "'Do you mean to drink or to drink?' That second one, scotch. She smiled languorously. Ah, uh, yes, of course. Please. Tom got her a drink and sat back on the sofa. Wendy stretched out from the other end, putting her stockinged feet in his lap. Would you be an absolute dear and rub my toes a tad? She asked. That damn accelerator is stuck and I'm positively cramped. Ah, oh, thanks. Just... Hard enough. That's nice. Tom netted her foot. So, have you been? He asked. Oh, it's been hell with Reginald out of the country. Wendy smiled and Tom realized she was being sarcastic. For some reason, a few hackles rose on the back of his neck. Oh, he really is a pompous windbag, isn't he? Not that you could say anything that blunt to the girls. I keep wanting to tell them that their daddy is not how men are supposed to be. I can never trust him to discipline them. He's either too harsh or trying to win them over. Yuck. Lord, this scotch is good. I haven't touched a drop in oh, forever. Can you switch feet? <laughs> You're so good, I might ask you to do one of my calves. They are still one of my better features, one of the few of my attributes Mother Nature left unblemished by pregnancy. <laughs> but don't let me do all the rambling. How are you, Tommy? Oh, not bad. Sad. Definitely sad. About what? <laughs> what could you have to be sad about? Single life? Good looks? Mm. Strong hands. A career that's more than just primping for reporters. Tom smiled. Oh, listen, <laughs> I had enough trouble hedging with your children. Don't even ask. Wendy shrugged. So, it's about Reginald. Please, of all people. You shouldn't hold back with me. I've been thinking of leaving him. Oh, no, 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 don't stop. But Tom could not restart his hands glanced at the travel bag Wendy had brought with her. She did not follow his glance, but seemed to know where it led. No, don't worry, I haven't come to seek refuge here. I'm in no mood to spark that kind of fraternal feud. It would make Cain and Abel seem chummy. 
But I am thinking about it nonetheless. When... When did you first think of it? I won't answer if you don't rub, she smiled. It's a long drive back. Reluctantly, Tom restarted his massage. That was a clever question, continued Wendy. Mm, I would have to say... On our honeymoon. Really? You sound surprised. I'm surprised it took that long, said Tom, then regretted it immediately. Sorry, that was abominably flippant. He took a little sailboat out mm, on our second day. Oh, he wouldn't wear any sunscreen. He pretends to know everything about sailing. Idiotic. The wind takes him away. Away. He's this tiny little dot on the horizon. <laughs> I picture him cursing the wind and waves. Never himself. Never himself. I think... If he falls off the end of the world, mm, that's nice. Wendy shifted a leg. You may do a cough, Mr. Spencer. <laughs> he comes back and is enraged that he has a sunburn. I couldn't imagine what to say. It's no fun even to say, I told you so. It just makes him angrier. But I like that. Sometimes. You know how it's fun to tell a vain woman that she has a pimple, play with their vanity. Oh, because, my God, but he's a vain creature. I thought it was mostly female vice. He's obsessed with how others see him. You should see him when the phone rings. He can be screaming at me, all purple, but his face fades and he runs to answer the phone and says, Hello, Reginald Spencer here. All charm and good humor. Ah, oh, gives me the willies. No, the creeps. He's a creepy man. So false, so <sighs> false. She laughed. <laughs> can you, can you see me <laughs> telling the judge? He's false, so I must leave him. Ah, <laughs> oh, the judge would laugh and say, "Mrs. Spencer, you show me a marriage that's not false, and I'll release you from yours." And so, I would have to stay. So sad. So very sad. Tom stopped rubbing Wendy's calf mid-length. Her head was lolling on the far side of the sofa. All his senses were alerted. If not for the nieces, he would have stopped the direction of this conversation and taken her someplace public for tea. But he was terrified that she might you know Tom she murmured her throat almost clogged with nostalgic sensuality you really remind me of my first bow you know I let myself be passed around a little later on before I met your brother I think I had the great misfortune of meeting my true love too early. <laughs> I didn't take rejection very well. He didn't reject me, per se. Just wanted to wait. Uh, but I've never been good at deferring gratification. Now or never. Listen, Wendy, I have to know something. What? 
Tom? Am I causing any problems between you and Reginald? She opened her eyes and regarded him with frank challenge. Whatever do you mean, what I say? I do not understand. No? Not at all. Do you mean your politics? I don't care about politics. Okay, all right. I just wanted to know. Know what? Tommy? Know whether I desired you? Look, if, if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. And what if you're not? Tom started. What? <laughs> oh, don't be silly. Just get me another scotch. Please. Tom got up and poured her a little more. Oh, she said, regarding the tumbler. How very Scottish of you. You have a long drive, he said, sitting down on the edge of the sofa, as you said. Wendy looked at him, then laughed out loud. <laughs> oh, please, don't tell me I'm making you uncomfortable. After all these years, let us say that I desire you terribly, if you like, if that feeds your ego. How much could we get up to, really, with my children, a mere heartbeat away? <laughs> you are safe, Mr. Spencer. Now sit down and be comfortable. Tom sat down, his head spinning. Wendy turned and gazed out of the window, tracing her fingertips over her thigh. So we are going to be frank, she murmured. Remember, you brought it up. He is terrible in... He never, ever touches me. Her breath shuddered slightly. I really don't know if I'm at all attractive anymore, Tom. <sighs> Sorry about being so badly flirty. It's not about you. It's about me. I mean, you're attractive, of course. A blind woman can see that. It's something about... You are clean in a very rare way, clean and healthy, kind, giving, loving, resolute, <laughs> a modern knight, not one of these fucking oily, slippery courtiers piling on each other to reach. She sighed. I don't know what. Power, probably. Reginald is so kind to every stranger he meets. He bends over backwards to make them like him. He almost forces them. Then once he has them, once they think he's the most noble and competent man in creation, he runs off to the next one. And they all trail after him like the sad tale of some broken kite. Tears welled up in her eyes. I feel that I'm in a kind of hell, Tom. That I'm losing my soul. To him, to his world, to all these lies and manipulations. I have to get away. I, I can't breathe there, Tom. I can't. Shh, he said, rubbing her shin. Please help me, she whispered, looking away and wiping her eyes with the back of her hand. What do you want me to do? asked Tom. I'm so sorry. Do you hate him? asked Wendy. Everyone... Loves him so much. I'm all alone. Everyone loves him. It would mean so 
much for me to know that someone else sees him for what he is, an infectious ghost. Tom hesitated, struggling mightily. Finally, he said, I don't like him. And it's not just, not just us two, our mother, Ruth, as well. Wendy's face turned to him, her eyes blazing in triumph. I knew it, she cried out, slapping the back of one hand into the palm of another. Tom heard the girls stir in the next room. It's always the goddamn mother, isn't it? She demanded, her cheeks flushed. That's what they say. <laughs> That's where they always lay the blame. So even his own mother doesn't like them. <laughs> How's that, hey, Reggie boy? Oh, you can't use that, said Tom, aghast. Oh, no, she laughed. No, 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 of course not. It's enough for me to know. Her face grew suddenly serious. But thank you. Thank you, Tom. I really thought I was going mad. Her eyelids fluttered. Would, would you mind giving me a little hug? I feel very shaky. Tom drew a deep breath and hesitated. Please, she cried, holding out her arms. Oh, right, said Tom. And then she was upon him, almost without transition. It seemed as if she were wriggling against him the very moment that he uttered his last word. Her body was convulsing, her hips writhing, her back arching. Her hands were in his hair. She was kissing his neck, licking his ear. Tom heard a creaking sound, but thought it was the couch. Oh, Tommy, she panted, her hands everywhere. I want. He could not help his response. He threw her from him against the coffee table. She skidded back, falling on her behind, her hair and eyes wild. She scrambled to her feet, her fingers crooked into claws, and then saw her two children staring from the open bedroom door. Mummy, asked Jocelyn tearfully, is Uncle Tom all right? Wendy stood there, her mouth open. Tom buried his face in his hands. Like a little bridge, Lillian's hand came up and pointed at her mother. X, 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 she whispered. Chapter 87 Events had moved away from Reginald and Lord Runciman. Chamberlain had flown to Munich to speak with Hitler alone, which was unprecedented. Lord Runciman was nonplussed. I mean, he said, half reclining on a leather sofa in the British Embassy in Prague, his chin resting on his chest. What is the point of having a foreign office if you just fly out and do your own negotiations whenever it suits you? I mean, the abominable vanity of the man... Here we have been dealing with Germany for twenty years, and he just up and flies to Munich to meet with Hitler on his own. My God! And imagine one of the most wonderful things about having diplomats is sending them to negotiate for you while giving them no power at all. 
the most common sentence in the diplomatic languages, I shall have to check with my superiors. Buys time creates distance. Here there's nothing. A dictator doesn't understand democracy. Chamberlain has to lay all his cards on the table. Who's Hitler going to have to check with his mummy? Goddamned fool. Why do you think he went back? asked Reginald. Lord Runciman snorted. Because Hitler changed his demands. We know that. Chamberlain fought mightily to give Hitler the Sudetenland. He had to flex all his political muscle to pull that one off. Duff Cooper wanted war. Eden was criticizing Chamberlain in public. Forty percent of the British public disapprove of Chamberlain's stand on Czechoslovakia. And there's always Churchill chomping on the bit. But he pulled it off, the old fox. But then he goes back to Hitler, trembling from head to foot from all his political exertions, offering him the Sudetenland. And our lovely little Austrian says, No, sir, Mr. Chamberlain, that's not what I want any more. Now I want Czechoslovakia divvied up on racial lines. Not just the Sudetenland for me, but also one million Hungarians back to Hungary, a hundred thousand Poles back to Poland, and several million Slovaks back to Russia. The current Czech government and its troops to withdraw back behind these racial lines and plebiscites over all disputed areas, not just the Sudetenland. My God, whispered Reginald. That would be the end of Czechoslovakia. Of course. Of course it would be. That's why the Czechs are mobilizing. That's the sound from the street. They're overjoyed. They think that the Germans will come. The Czechs will hold out heroically, and then us and the frogs will come in out of guilt. <laughs> for them, it's a great battle for civilization. <laughs> they, my young friend, are also fools. Reginald frowned. Why? We'll have to come in if they fight. The Czechs. That is very likely. That is why our entire policy is, at the moment, entirely geared towards ensuring that the Czechs do not fight. Lord Runciman shuddered delicately. My God, can you imagine another world war? But won't we have to? I, I don't mean to appear too naive, but the French will have to fight. Then we'd... Yes, said Lord Runciman impatiently. But that's not the purpose of it. Not at all. If Hitler comes up with something we can force down Benes's throat, then by God we all line up and start shoving. If Benes fights that, if he resists our compromise, then we wash our hands of him and leave him to his fate. This is no time for gratuitous principles. We're all staring utter destruction in the face. Our nose is down the muzzle. It's all up to Benes now, Lord Runciman sighed. And now he's gone and mobilized. And we're all bleating down the line to Hitler, stammering to reassure him that we didn't tell him to mobilize. Oh, no, not us. So you, you disapprove? Oh, the whole thing is an unholy mess. We're long past the point of doing anything intelligent now. We can stop eating cake now, but we already weigh 500 pounds. I don't know why Bennis doesn't see that. He's bleating, too, how he's being mistreated and abandoned. He doesn't see how things stand. Everyone has run away, but he's still marching forward. 
He's crying out, come on, chaps. We're all in a bunker saying, good luck, and taking odds on the number of seconds he has left. <sighs> An unholy mess. Reginald swallowed. What, uh, what would you do if you were do? Good Lord, you're asking a doctor how to save a terminal patient. If I were Bennis, I'd agree to whatever Hitler demands. Give him the Sudetenland, whatever he wants, and hope that it really is his last territorial claim. It can't be. No, it can't be. Why not? Because not too long ago he said that he just wanted the Sudetenland. Now he wants more. Before that he said he didn't want Austria. Before that he said he didn't want the Rhineland. The man cannot be trusted. Lord Runciman laughed, imitating a Cockney accent. Well, Sonny, that's an eye-opener. Of course he can't be trusted. The man murders his own war companions, old party members since day one, and we think he'll be squeamish about lying? We are hoping to chase down and hold him to some imaginary grain of goodness and honour in his person. It doesn't exist. So, so why did you come? I didn't think. I like the Czechs so much. They really are quite noble, very brave. They'd rather die than surrender. Oh, it's going to be awful. And do you think that there's really no hope, then? Lord Runciman shook his head slowly. Reginald paused. But they're all meeting in Munich at the moment, British, French, Germans and Italians. Lord Runciman smiled. And what are they meeting for? Well, to decide the fate of Czechoslovakia. Then who, pray tell, is conspicuously absent from the nations you spoke of? Reginald paused again. Ah. Two dictators, two appeasers. I think it will not go well for Czechoslovakia. Mark my words, nothing will happen at Munich which has not already been decided. Reginald was about to reply when a steward came up and bowed. Telephone call for you, sir. Reginald looked up, surprised. Really? A lady, your wife. Ooh, grimaced Lord Runciman. Better get that, then. Reginald was having a hard time hearing her. This was for two reasons. First, because the line was bad. Second, because she was crying and he had never heard her do that. Reginald? Yes? Yes. Hello? Is everything all right? Yes, I just had to talk to you. What has happened? Are the children... The children are fine. Fine. Oh, Reginald, when are you coming home? Soon. In a few weeks, at most. Why? I... What? Pardon? Look, you'll just have to speak up. I miss you. Well, that's nice, but can't you put that in a letter? We have to keep this line open. I'm getting looks. Reginald... What? I have to... Reginald. What? He... He attacked me. What? What? He attacked me. Your brother. You... Please re repeat that. I, I want to be sure I have it right. Tom attacked me. Oh, Reginald, the children saw it. They have it all mixed up in their minds. Reginald. Reginald, are you there? Put it, put it in a letter. Listen, I'm sorry. I, I have to be away. But, but put it in a letter. I'll write to Tom. Put it in a letter. Is there anyone there you could talk to? A friend? 
I was trying to talk to Tom when... When... All right. Please try and hold yourself together. This is wretched, wretched timing. Wendy. Wendy, you have to be strong. Listen. Listen, you'll have to put it all in a letter. Send it express. I have to get off the line. We need it. I'm being signaled that it's needed for a diplomatic call. Try me at the hotel tonight. You know where I'm staying? What? Yes, good. Well, hang on. Stiff upper lip. We'll sort it out when I get home. I said we'll sort it out when... Hello? Hello? All right, then. Chapter 88 The telephone rang late at night. Tom awoke from uneasy dreams of being some sort of green-praying insect and recalled everything from the previous day immediately. He knew it was Wendy, some damn story, some horrible apology, some justification, some blame. Her eyes had been on fire with hatred when she had swept out with the crying children. She had even forgotten her travel bag, which lay by his front door. He would have to send it back. He really, really didn't want to pick up the telephone. Her unhappiness had nothing to do with him. After he had thrown her off, after she had clambered to her feet and seen her watching pointing children, she had stared at them for perhaps twenty seconds, then whirled and slapped Tom hard across the face. The ringing went on. Tom put his pillow over his head. He couldn't help but notice that Jocelyn had been right. It was a little sour. There was a short silence, then it started up again. After about five minutes of constant ringing, Tom heard thumping and bellowing from his neighbor. Answer that or I'll break down your goddamn door and answer it myself. Tom got up and stood over the black jangling telephone. His eyes followed the cord. I should just unplug it, he thought, but then thought of his beloved nieces and thought that perhaps Wendy had come to her senses and was calling to apologize and offered that they put it all behind them. Fine with me, he thought. I'm more of a breast man than a leg man anyway. He picked up the receiver. Yes? Tom! An angry male voice. Where the hell have you been? Who? Hart? Yes. Christ almighty, you take heroin to fall asleep? It's a goddamn flat, right? Right, but sorry, I thought you were someone else. Wait, why am I apologizing? What time is it? Three? Well, it was three when I first started calling. Probably 3.30 now. Tom took a deep breath. Why are you calling, Hart? You put me in this purgatory to keep my eyes open. Well, they're open. Boy, are they open. We have to meet. I have to meet with your friend Churchill in the morning. Should be Churchill, unless you know anyone with more power. Why? Not on the telephone. Come to London. You should come here. Churchill is not far. Pause. All right. No, that's terrible. Come to my flat. Why? I'm not at work, but I might have to go back. Tom made some instant coffee so strong it resisted stirring, then got in his car to drive to London. He thought of flying, but didn't know what the airports would be like this time of night. 
although he thought it's not too long before early morning flights. He arrived at Hart's flat a little after five in the morning, after driving very fast. Normally, Tom was a very careful driver because he hated the stereotype of fast-driving pilot and because he wanted to reserve his luck for air emergencies. Hart was up, pacing, awash in coffee. Tom, all right, that was quick, very good. Did you fly? It doesn't matter. He was rubbing his hands feverishly. Tom knew better than to try talking him down. History, Tom? Do you know we are right in the middle of history? If I were a religious man, I'd say, why me, God? But I'm not. And I never believed any of Klaus's rot about the universal spirit. <laughs> so there it is. This is what I heard. This is it. I was working late last night, and Halifax's door was open. Isn't he in Munich? Hart shook his head rapidly. And I thought I heard German, so I sidled over. Very stupid. But something drew me, and I caught a glimpse, just as if I were walking past, but very softly. And a German man was sitting in Halifax's office. A German military man. Very, very well decorated. Tom's mouth dropped open which was very gratifying to Hart, who firmly believed that he was in possession of one of the greatest pieces of gossip in recorded history. "'Have you ever heard of a German named General Beck?' he asked. Tom shook his head. "'I looked him up. Very big, close to Hitler. This man in Halifax's office—I never got his name, I'll call him General X—he said that General Beck has become quite disenchanted with der Führer. Thinks that, all right, it worked.' three times with conscription, the Rhineland and Austria, but now he thinks that Hitler's gone potty, that they're not ready for a war against Czechoslovakia, not with the whole world. And he's not alone. There are others, others. What? What do they want to do? Hart blinked as if he was sure he'd already told him. Overthrow Hitler, of course. Tom's legs buckled right where he was, and he went down right onto the carpet. Hart leapt over and helped him up. Oh, that's what I did, right at the F.O., almost, except I was terrified of being hurt. Come on, get up. You're not hurt, it's shag. Tom sat in an armchair, absently rubbing his knee. All right, he said, his voice harsh with hope. They want a coup. Who? Be exact. You want to bring this to Churchill, he'll grill you until you can't see straight. I'd no bad with me, thank God, said Hart taking it out of the breast pocket of his rumpled suit and flipping it open. Beck started opposing Hitler a few months ago when he got wind of plans to invade Czechoslovakia. He said no more adventures. Hitler said screw you, the army is the tool of the state. So Beck resigned. General X says to Halifax, by the beginning of September they had taken the necessary steps to save Germany from this Austrian lunatic. They think that the majority of Germans view another war without a horror. Apparently, Hitler drew back from Czechoslovakia in March only because no one came out for one of his parades. Anyway, they don't want to kill Hitler, just arrest him, establish a military government and tell the people that they were forced to act because Hitler was leading them to utter disaster. General X doesn't think the German people will mind being spared certain carnage. Well, some elements, but not many. Just the madmen. But he argues that the submissive nature of the German people, which makes them obey Hitler, will also cause them to obey his successor. Tom tried to swallow but failed. Look, I, I need some water, 
Help yourself. I, I have pots of coffee, too. Tom went to the kitchen, poured some water, and came back limping slightly. All right. How many? he asked. Eight. Generals Halder, Beck, Stupnagel, Witzleben, he's the commander of the Berlin garrison, Thomas, controller of armaments, Brockdorf, commander of the Potsdam garrison, and Graf von Heldorf, who was in charge of the Berlin police. The commander-in-chief, General von Brauchitz, was apparently informed and approves. Christ, groaned Tom. Oh, I'm so sorry I didn't answer the telephone earlier, but who would have guessed who? It's all right, said Hart, his eyes shining. He looked down at his notepad. This is their plan. They hold one panzer tank division close to Berlin, which is easy to conceal as part of the troop movements towards Czechoslovakia, so I could reach Berlin in one night's travel. This is the third panzer division commanded by General Hapner. It's stationed south of Berlin. Hapner is going to occupy the capital, the chancellery, and all the big Nazi ministries and offices at a signal from General Witzlin. Also, this man, Heldorf, has made meticulous plans to arrest Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, and Himmler. Hart looked up. All they need is for Hitler to be in Berlin. He came from Berchtesgarten on the 14th. They made their plans. So then? asked Tom, for some reason terrified of the answer. So they are ready to go. But at four o'clock, Fitzleben's officers tells the others that Chamberlain was coming over, tells everyone about the Four Powers Conference in Munich. So they all... Get together, have a meeting? Hart took a deep breath. And at that meeting, they all agreed that if Hitler's bluff worked, Halder, as chief of staff, could not reasonably call it. What? What does that mean? Hart looked up, his brown eyes dark and strangely sober. I think it means that if Chamberlain decides to fight for Czechoslovakia, then there will be no war, not even a little one. Hitler will be overthrown without a shot being fired. Germany will withdraw her troops and everyone can come home. Tom stared at Hart for a long moment, hearing his heart thudding in his ears, then leapt for the telephone. Chapter 89 Reginald was enraged. He was beyond words. Even his famously acidic pen was not up to the task. Before, when he'd written angry letters to Tom, most notably after the Oxford debate five years previously, he had taken great pains to channel his anger into appropriate channels. But now, he thought, there are no appropriate channels. If he had been in England, he truly thought he would have challenged Tom to a duel. There can be no more compromises, no more pussyfooting around. Now I have to draw a line to attack my wife when I'm off defending his lazy, worthless hide. This time, Reginald's rage knew no bounds. He found that he could whip up his restless troops with a bare minimum of rhetoric. His whole life he's been jealous of me, the little fuck. I have everything he wants, but is too cowardly to take. I have a good degree... A great job, a beautiful wife, obedient children, a lovely house, and the respect of my peers. He sits in a little room mucking about with airplane motors and nursing all his bitter self-induced wounds. 
and to imagine that I am somehow to blame for all his failures. I risked my reputation at every turn to help him, and what do I get in return? Oh, he could sit and whine and plot with Hart and Gunther and all the likes of that sad little lot. He could even undermine me with my children. They are, after all, my children, which is scarcely a contest. He can leer at my wife and leave footprints on my carpet, but when his bitter rage overflows and he touches her in anger, in lust, in the sick desire to destroy all that we have built together, when I am thousands of miles away, working for a safety that protects him as well, oh, that is too much. How I would love to take his twisting, whining neck and throttle all the spiteful life from its windpipe. How I yearn to... And so on, and on and on. He was sitting in his hotel room, trying to avoid having the third of three drinks too many, when the telephone rang. It was Lord Runciman. Come to the bar, young man. Your opinion is required. Cursing, Reginald changed, knotted his bow-tie, and went down to the hotel bar. Lord Runciman was sitting in a booth with a rather obese man with a little moustache and heavily oiled hair. Lord Runciman smiled and gestured. Reginald, Spencer, meet Fletcher Islington. Fletcher has flown down this very night to ask our opinion of our good friends the Czechs. I have given him mine, but I know you would approach me with puppy-dog eyes if I did not allow you your participation. Lord Runciman was a little drunk. Here's the thing, said Fletcher, leaning forward and wiping his face. He had bad teeth and constantly gestured in front of them as he spoke like a magician of decay. We have been approached by eight German generals with a remarkable offer. They say that if we call Hitler's bluff and guarantee to support Czechoslovakia, then they will lop his head off, politically speaking. So what we want to know is, and Lord Ransman has already given me his opinion, what will the Czechs do if we guarantee their borders? Reginald held up his hand. His heart was hammering hard. Do you mean the 1919 borders, the original ones? Before all this started? The same, wheezed Fletcher. His breath was bad, too. Reginald briefly wondered why no one ever told him this, then realized that, of course, everyone thought this, and it did no good at all. The question is, asked Fletcher, will they fight? Why would it matter? asked Reginald. His jaw was rigid. He wanted to bite both men and the table. He kept seeing Tom's handsome head bending over his pale, shaking wife, like the cover of some awful third-rate romance novel, with the children watching. Fletcher glanced at Lord Runciman, who shrugged. He turned back to Reginald. What do you mean, why would it matter? Well, if these generals are going to decompose or <laughs> depose Hitler, why would the Czechs have to fight? Fletcher nodded. Well, uh, we're concerned that the generals might not act until the German troops are engaged on the border, just so Hitler, if he escapes, the coup won't be able to summon much resistance. And so if the Czechs will fight, we might risk supporting them, since it will get rid of Hitler. As he sat there in the smoky booth, Reginald thought he heard a distinctive click and some basic inner structure seemed to fall away from him. All of Europe seemed to unfold in his mind's eye.
with himself at one end and Tom at the other. And he had a sudden, overwhelming desire to... to... It's a trap, he said. Fletcher's head darted forward. Lord Runciman frowned. A trap, young man, he said. You don't seem to understand the... It's a trap, said Reginald with exquisite calm. This is what is happening. Hitler wants to declare war on England. Maybe not this minute, perhaps after dealing with Czechoslovakia, but soon, early next year. And this is his casus belli, his just cause. We are supporting a coup against him. I will tell you what will happen. We will accede to these German generals, or whoever is representing them, and then Hitler will miraculously discover this plot and our complicity in it, and then he will feel free to act against us. Fletcher blinked. But but that's incredible. Why us? He would have to come through France first. Why not use France for this plot instead? Because France has no real government and hasn't had one for, what, ten years? And the point is not to single out England, but to separate us from France. Separate us? How? Have we informed France about this extraordinary offer? Fletcher paused. It was enough. Do you really think so? He asked, his voice hushed. Reginald ticked off his fingers. We don't tell France about this German plot. Hitler discovers it. He declares war on us. France says, and who could blame her, well, England, you made this decision alone, so you must take the consequences alone. And our great alliance, the only hope to stop Hitler, is in tatters. But what if it is not a ruse, a trap, demanded Lord Runciman. Reginald leaned back and spread his hands. What does it matter? Perhaps it is not. No, let us say that it is not. What then? Suppose the plot fails. Are you saying that even under torture, none of the eight generals will tell Hitler about England's complicity to save themselves or their families? Of course they will. That's if the plot even comes to fruition. It probably won't even get that far. They could get caught any number of a million ways before they lift a finger. What if the panzer commander changes his mind? What if even some of his men remember that they've made a personal vow of loyalty to the Fuhrer? Reginald felt a great black satisfaction rolling through his chest as he spoke. Do we really want to be mixed up in all this? If they're so certain of the virtue of their plan, why do they need our help? Why inform us? Why do we have to stand up to Hitler for them to depose him? And even if they do depose him, they will only replace him. And remember that their objection is not that Hitler shouldn't be invading Czechoslovakia, just that he's doing it at the wrong time. So they wait a year or two with their new dictator, and then they try again. What will we tell our good British citizens then? I can hear it now as we force them to fight. Well, we effectively installed this new dictator, and now that he is so much stronger than Hitler, please go and kill him for us. Our government would collapse within a week. No. Gentlemen, it really will not do. We should reply to these German generals that their internal coups are their own business, and they should just let us know what happens. Otherwise, when we have become tangled up in a plot to kill or depose him, 
How shall Hitler negotiate with us in the future? It is pure, pure nonsense. And if you want my opinion, there it is. There was silence in the booth after Reginald's speech. He sat slumped back in his seat as if he had lost some essential part of his skeleton. Fletcher wiped his mouth, grimaced, then jumped up. I have to make a telephone call to London, he stammered right away. Reginald gestured limply. Ask at reception. The fat man turned and struggled through the crowd, cursing loudly as he pushed. Lord Runciman turned to Reginald. His eyes were wide in wonder. He smiled graciously, tipping an imaginary hat. My God, Reginald, you are a brave man. Even if such inspiration had struck me, I would have hesitated before accepting such a mantle. If you are wrong, historians will track you down and nail your hide up as the centerpiece in some museum of shame. Do you really believe all that? Reginald passed a hand across his forehead. It was coming. He could feel it. A headache of rare, almost biblical proportions. Oh, you know, Lord Runciman, he murmured. I don't have much respect for thought. Most philosophy is just the striving of weak men for justifications to do nothing. Chapter 90 Chapter 90 Father Martin was utterly surprised at himself. He sat in the first pew of his little whitewashed church. He looked at the back of his hands. They were very old. The skin was mottled and wrinkled. The veins and tendons bulged. He moved his fingers and felt the muscles slithering all the way up his forearm. He cupped his hand, slowly rotating his wedding ring, his head lowering. Martin felt immense. He felt larger than his church. He felt as if he were squatting over the black land of his birth. This is the soul of a man when joined with God. Now it was clear. Now the lesson had been learned. Every red spatter was bathed in the whitest, most divine light. His wife had been struck down for wanting to hang crucifixes. It was all resoundingly simple, and Martin felt huge beyond any human scale. He thought back over his mental life of the past five years. It had all seemed so confusing. That cannot have been because the signs were unclear, but because he was uncertain because he lacked faith. By now, his wife's wedding ring was lost somewhere. It had gone to join the general confusion of general atoms. 
and her soul was in God's care. Because I could not care for her, thought Martin, his brow contracting in pain. He felt at one with everything. He felt as if his little flesh were the whole universe. He felt united with endless love, infinite light. Everything had settled within him. And, as is often the case, once he had decided his purpose, his next action was clear. He was going to preach. The Nazis were from the devil. The Nazis were murderous thugs, petty arsonists bent on setting the whole world afire. The Nazis were pure evil. Martin's head lowered towards his hands a little more. It is all so clear in hindsight. God is not political. God is not tribal. The individual conscience is and must be utterly sovereign. The soul cannot cede its moral authority to another agency. Force has no place in the determination of moral choices. God gives us free will, which no government or group can override. The moment Hitler demanded that each German swear an oath of personal loyalty to him, I should have known. There shall be no false gods before me. We invited the devils because we were afraid of responsibility. We gave them our souls because... We no longer knew how to tend them. A lazy, fearful band can always find someone else to tell him what to do. And I was that man. I was afraid. I feared for my children, my wife, myself. But that choice was never mine to make. My relationship is with God, who gives all things. For fear of endangering my wife, I submitted to evil masters who murdered her outright. I could have had a fight, but instead I chose submission, which destroyed me without even the honor of a fight. Martin took a deep breath and raised his eyes to the little crucifix over his altar. He had always loved this little church, this little nest of old stones, this sanctuary, this safe, this womb of God. And he felt something he had not felt for many, many years. The world is always at war between good and evil, between freedom and force, between individual sovereignty and group power, between conscience and obedience. And we forgot that for some reason. We chose to f focus on the details, who said what, what happened when, and so we lost ourselves. 
If one regards only details, one can always submit. And something came to him then on his night's reverie in his empty church. Almost. I was almost a good man. So I became the worst man. I almost fought for goodness, and so I brought about its death. I pretended to wrestle with my conscience, and so I betrayed everything I loved. I almost tried, and so discredited trying. I almost resisted, and so damned resistance. Then he wept. It was soft and silent. It was all the endless tears which come too late. The world warned me and kept warning me. Every warning became more bladed, more sinister. And still I wavered, still I doubted. And now all my hesitating seems so futile, so stupid. Why did I have to wait for death to defend life? I am supposed to guard the farthest walls of humanity, the walls before the greatest devils. And they come over the wall and I squint and doubt and they come loping and baying across the walls, and still I hum and wonder. And they come barking down my lane, and still I counsel patience and prudence. And then they tear apart my wife. And now I say, oh, this lesson is too harsh. But it is not too harsh. It is only harsh, because I was a coward. The wages of sin is death. And these devils were a long time coming, and they did not hide their approach. And now that they stand above me, twitching and drooling, I shall at least curse their presence. I shall not survive my cursing, but my voice might carry a little. And it was this that I feared the most, standing up and being in danger. Because I have been a tyrant. <laughs> Could I have stood up to the Nazis without apologizing to my children? Force cannot be used in morality. But I beat my children for failing me. I beat my wife for disagreeing. Martin sobbed. His head was almost upon his knees. His back ached with the strain of bending over. 
he felt like an accordion full of seawater, bending over squeezed salt tears from his eyes. In his extremity of agony, oh, and there is no agony on earth greater than moral transgressions felt too late, he had a terrible thought. It was so strong, so simultaneous with his pain and terror, that he felt that it might have come from God, or from his late wife now with him. Renata put up the crucifixes because she would rather be with God than me. And then, Renata put up the crosses to save her own soul from me, because I was leading us down the easy path, the compliant path, toward the everlasting fire. And he felt then such a sudden and overwhelming desire to be with his wife that he would have attacked an armed Nazi commander then and there if one could be found. He wanted to be with Renata, to thank her for her courage, her lesson, and to apologize for his own vanity in his family and in the world, for his use of the sword when words were acquired, and his use of words when the sword was required. But it will not be long now, he thought. And with that thought, peace entered into his heart. His life was now to be measured in days. His words would bring the devils, but would not bring down the devils. Martin thought of his wife on their wedding day. Her hope, her bliss, everything he had destroyed. He closed his eyes, straightened his back, and folded his hands. Soon they would be together. Chapter 91 On September 27th, 1938, Chamberlain made a personal broadcast to the anxious British people. Tomorrow, Parliament is going to meet, and I shall be making a full statement of the events which have led up to the present anxious and critical situation. An earlier statement would not have been possible when I was flying backwards and forwards across Europe, and the position was changing from hour to hour. But today there is a lull for a brief time, and I want to say a few words to you, men and women of Britain and to the Empire, and perhaps to others as well. First of all, I must say something to those who have written to my wife or myself in these last weeks to tell us of their gratitude for my efforts and to assure us of their prayers for my success. Most of these letters have come from women, mothers or sisters of our own countrymen. But there are countless others besides from France, from Belgium, from Italy, and even from Germany, 
and it has been heartbreaking to read the growing anxiety they reveal, and their intense relief when they thought, too soon, that the danger of war was past. If I felt my responsibility, heavy before, to read such letters, has made it seem almost overwhelming. How horrible, fantastic, incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. It seems still more impossible that a quarrel which has already been settled in principle should be the subject of war. I can well understand the reasons why the Czech government have felt unable to accept the terms which have been put before them in the German memorandum. Yet I believe, after my talks with Herr Hitler, that if only time were allowed, it ought to be possible for the arrangements for transferring the territory that the Czech government has agreed to give to Germany to be settled by agreement under conditions which would assure fair treatment to the population concerned. You know already that I have done all that one man can do to compose this quarrel. After my visits to Germany, I have realized vividly how Herr Hitler feels that he must champion other Germans, and his indignation that grievances have not been met before this. He told me, privately, and last night he repeated publicly, that after this Sudeten German question is settled, that is the end of Germany's territorial claims in Europe. After my first visit to Berchtesgaden, I did get the assent of the Czech government to proposals which gave the substance of what Herr Hitler wanted, and I was taken completely by surprise when I got back to Germany and found that he insisted that the territory should be handed over to him immediately, and immediately occupied by German troops, without previous arrangements for safeguarding the people within the territory, who were not Germans or did not want to join the German Reich. I must say that I find this attitude unreasonable. If it arises out of any doubts that Herr Hitler feels about the intentions of the Czech government to carry out their promises and hand over the territory, I have offered on part of the British government to guarantee their words, and I am sure the value of our promise will not be underrated anywhere. I shall not give up the hope of a peaceful solution, or abandon my efforts for peace, as long as any chance for peace remains. I would not hesitate to pay even a third visit to Germany if I thought it would do any good, but at this moment I see nothing further that I can usefully do in the way of mediation. Meanwhile, there are certain things we can and shall do at home. Volunteers are still wanted for air raid precautions, for fire brigade and police services, and for the territorial units. I know that all of you, men and women alike, are ready to play your part in the defence of the country, and I ask you all to offer your services, if you have not already done so, to the local authorities, who will tell you if you are wanted and in what capacity. Do not be alarmed if you hear of men being called up to man the anti-aircraft defences or ships. These are only precautionary measures such as a government must take in times like this, but they do not necessarily mean that we have determined on war or that war is imminent. However much we may sympathize with a small nation confronted by a big and powerful neighbor, we cannot, in all circumstances, undertake to involve the whole British Empire in war simply on her account. If we have to fight, it must be on larger issues than this. I am myself a man of peace to the depths of my soul. 
armed conflict between nations is a nightmare to me. But if I were convinced that any nation had made up its mind to dominate the world by fear of its force, I should feel that it must be resisted. Under such a domination, life for people who believe in liberty would not be worth living. But war is a fearful thing. And we must be very clear, before we embark on it, that it is really the great issues that are at stake, and that the call to risk everything in their defence, when all the consequences are weighed, is irresistible. For the present, I ask you to wait as calmly as you can the events of the next few days. As long as war has not begun, there is always hope that it may be prevented, and you know that I am going to work for peace to the last moment. Good night. The meeting at Munich between the four powers, England, France, Germany and Italy, on September 28, 1938, lasted for 14 hours. The debate began at noon and ended at two o'clock in the morning of the following day. Neither the Russians nor the Czechs were invited to be present. The exclusion of the Russians was a grave error because no guarantee of Czechoslovakian independence could carry any weight without Russian participation. It was a clear signal, more clear even than the exclusion of the Czechs, of the intent of the conference. Czech representatives did come to Munich in order to present the conclusions reached to their government. They were placed in a hotel room, which was locked from the outside and guarded. The conference was conducted in three main sessions. There was a lunch break at three o'clock and a dinner break at nine. These were tense sessions, but in essence nothing was being decided at Munich which had not already been decided beforehand. Hitler Chamberlain and Deladier were making little progress, and then Mussolini introduced a memorandum, which had in fact been secretly approved by Hitler the day before, which stated that the occupation of the Sudetenland could take place in five stages, instead of one. These stages were to take place over ten days, the first four by October the 7th, the last by October 10th. Chamberlain was pleasantly surprised by the reasonable nature of these proposals, Hitler also dropped the Hungarian and Polish territorial demands. An international commission was to be set up to determine the final borders. Hitler accepted this quite casually. Chamberlain was surprised by the latitude which Hitler was prepared to grant the international commission. France and England agreed to guarantee the remnants of the Czech state. After the German occupation, six months of free travel was to be allowed in and out of the Sudetenland to allow for voluntary relocation of those unwilling to live under the Nazis. Czech farmers were to be compensated for their seized lands. All disputed areas were to be offered a plebiscite to determine whether they would join the Reich. The results of these clauses were predictable. After the Nazis marched into the Sudetenland, no one, was allowed out. The Reich demanded the return of the Jews and anti-Nazis who had fled to the remnants of Czechoslovakia, and the crippled Czech government complied. Most refugees were sent to concentration camps or murdered. No plebiscites were ever held. The new British and French guarantees proved as useless as the old ones. Six months after Munich, Hitler swallowed the remnants of Czechoslovakia. England and France 
did nothing. 